This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Hopsteiner, a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality, sustainability, and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products. Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop-related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand-new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. You may, in fact, have to adjust your recipe for freshness. They would start to see this vegetal flavor showing up in a lot of their in their IPAs, um, high hopped IPAs, and it wasn't that crystal malts all have a vegetal flavor. It's that once they age past their prime, they're going to develop this 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 uh, uh, flavors. This week on the show, we explore flavor development in specialty malt, roaster technology, specialty malt freshness, yellow T-shirts, and more. All right here on the Master Brewers Podcast. Hello, I'm Christopher Schooley uh, with Troubadour Maltings in Fort Collins, Colorado. Uh, I'm Jeff Bloom. I am the founder and maltster at Murphy and Rude Malting Company here in Charlottesville, Virginia. I'm Aaron McLeod. I'm the director of the Hartwick College Center for Craft Food and Beverage. Is malting a science or an art? Well... As someone who makes his living as a scientist in the field of malting and brewing, I mean, I really want to say that it's a science. Um, Certainly, it's a field that's been really well studied. Um, In fact, the first working professionals, the the first working professional chemists were actually hired by breweries like Carlsberg um, to solve problems for them. Um, We've got centuries of written knowledge and certainly over 100 years of scientific literature, um, all on the science of malting and brewing. Despite the fact, though, that we can describe exactly what's happening, you know, biochemically during the malting process, right down to the molecular level, malting isn't something that you can program a machine to do. Um, There's no equipment, you know, you can buy these days that you could put the barley in, push a button, um, come back a week later and have good malt. Um, There's no formula or algorithm that you can enter all the grain parameters like protein, um, germination and variety that will even spit out the needed process conditions. So a person really has to be involved in this process. Um, a person has to pay attention, respond to the grain, make adjustments. You know, the grain is alive. So I guess sometimes I think that's what craft really is. It's it's that sort of intersection and application of the science and technology, technology by humans, by people. Um, and that person in the malt house is a maltster. All right. Well, I guess that's good news for, for Chris and Jeff here. How about making specialty malt? Is that even more of an art? I mean. If we've decided that malting itself is a craft, then I think roasting is really uh, a specialty within that craft. Um, you know, there's maybe, what, a couple of dozen books or monographs on malting, but I can't think of a single one on roasting. Um, normally, the production of specialty malts takes up like a one chapter of a book. Um, less than 20% of malt houses, maybe even fewer than that, even have a roaster. Um, so I think it's definitely a, a specialty within itself. 
we covered this topic in depth back on episode 42, but I think it's worth touching on again since there's still a lot of confusing marketing terms out there. I want to illustrate the difference between the terms crystal and caramel. Chris, you produce a kiln-made 50 Lovabond product called Encore that you describe as a Kara hybrid. And Jeff, you make both a Crystal 40 and a Crystal 60. Let's hear about how those different malts are made and what contributions a brewer should expect from each of them. A caramel malt, uh, due to its, uh, I don't want to call it a lack of uniformity, but um, it's the the difference in how it's made i i believe you are you are incorporating much more of a melanoidin product so kind of that like umami um sensory profile into into your recipe whereas a crystal is really you know you have purposely produced long chain dextrin sugars for the purpose of caramelization and very vibrant you know reddish to copper orange colors that are you know they're unfermentable they're much sweeter you know i believe that's also why there's a love and hate relationship with crystal malts i mean we sell lots of crystal malts and there are groups of our customer base that use crystal malts and then there's ones that just don't um and i i do believe it's the you know the attraction um either to these you know, more unfermentable dextrin crystal malts that are, you know, can be perceived as cloyingly sweet uh, when when not used, uh, maybe perhaps used a little too high of the grist. But um, whereas the, the caramel malts, I think, celebrate um, what a kiln is capable of producing and can certainly produce a very um, distinctive, you know, multi-level flavor malt. A good comparison might be um, fully refined sugar um, compared to something like a turbinado or even uh, like a succinat, like a um, something that all the molasses content has been removed from. And so you have this immediate intense sweetness versus something where the um, molasses wasn't fully separated. Molasses content wasn't fully separated from the sucrose. And so you get more of these fruity flavors or, or, or toffee like flavors. Um, and a lot of those flavors are present in the crystal as well. But I would, I would kind of echo that in terms of that intent, that sweet intensity versus maybe some more, um, some different kind of complexities to the flavor. Uh, as far as Encore goes, we really um, try to focus in on the dark fruit character of it and the way that pairs with the the toffee notes um, and those caramelized sugar notes, but really trying to bring out those dark dried fruit elements because we think that that's, that's something that adds a lot of unique character um, to that particular malt and what how that manifests in. And that's actually a really popular product with um distillers as well as brewers um because it's something that those flavors really do carry through to the distillate um not just the more toasted almond or toffee flavors but a lot of those dark fruit characters will carry through um to the distillate which is really really interesting um but i would also say that one of the main differences here and it's something that you just don't really hear people talk about a lot in relation to malts in general. And it will, I'll always, it will always be my boldy pulpit, which is the impact of freshness and shelf life on those flavors. And I think the differences between crystal and Kara can really um, reflect some of those, some of those, those, some of those differences can come out even more prominently in the way that they age. Whereas with, uh, with a caramalt, as it ages, it's more the the fruit character starts to dissipate, and you lose a little bit more of that. And the toastier, more caramelized, bitter uh, flavors start to become a lot more prevalent. Whereas with the crystals, one of the more common kind of aged flavors that comes out of it through the oxidation and whatnot is an almost vegetal uh, like flavor. This green green vegetal flavor that kind of pops out. That flavor in particular, and the way it, it interacts with uh, hot profiles, flavor profiles and whatnot, is one of the main reasons why um, crystal malt started kind of getting dogged um, in, in brewing communities because they would 
start to see this vegetal flavor showing up in a lot of their in their IPAs, um, high hopped IPAs. And it wasn't that crystal malts all have a vegetal flavor. It's that once they age past their prime, they're going to develop this 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 uh, uh, flavor. So, I mean, freshness in terms of malt is a completely seemingly completely untouched subject in in brewing and distilling and its impact on on flavor profiles um and there's some research around performance um and whatnot but not as much around actual actual flavor profiles and the thing is with specialty malts is i feel that the impact of shelf life and freshness is even more greatly um amplified because you've added this additional processing to it you've broken down the cellular structure of this plant in even more so than you would just creating a base malt um engaging in uh caramelization reactions engaging in these um um in these gelatinizations and and converting these sugars and furthering those steps onto um this organic material is only going to decrease its shelf life even more um in terms of really capturing uh the like the full uh scope of these flavors and that's something that you know i can't answer right now other than anecdotally tasting our products over time and seeing how those change but it's definitely something I, I, you know, I again will get into the pulpit time and time again to ask folks to to start looking at more closely because I feel that, you know, that really expands uh, the potential of what craft malt can do and offer and and bring about change wise to to this industry. That's interesting. Talk about, um, give us some some perspective on that that scale. Like how how quickly does uh, do these products stay? How quickly do do you start to lose freshness? I mean, do you have a what's your shelf life on your on on your on those molds? Well, and again, it depends on how far along they have been processed um, that we would gauge that. But you know, I would say that at least within three months. Um, and again, this is anecdotal, um, just trials, our own, you know, sensory trials and tasting things where you start to really notice that some of the, uh, deeper dark fruit kind of characteristics have dissipated and you're starting to get a more toastier profile and that starts to overpower, um, the, uh, the other flavors, the, the actual caramelization starts to overpower everything else in at least three months. Um, as far as some, ro- you know, we do a lot of other roasted materials and anything dark roasted. Um, I mean, in a, in less than a month, it's a different product than it was out of the roaster. I mean, easily. So, um, because you've just so, especially anything like really, really dark roasted bar, anything over like 400 level bond or whatnot, um, you know, you really start to see that that falling off after a month in terms of having those sweet cocoa elements that are laced within the bitter caramelization uh, flavors. Um, but the 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 bittering starts to overpower everything else. That must be why Jeff. Why I like that stout so much. Uh, Jeff Jeff's my local monster here in Charlottesville, and so I, I brewed a stout last year that he. Uh, he roasted the barley for me and I, I picked it up while it was still warm and, and brewed with it, I think in, you know, within probably 20 hours of it coming out of the, out of the roaster. And it was pretty good. Absolutely. Um, and you get complexity from that, that you can, again, you can, um, uh, you can really simplify your, your grist bill, but have an even more complex beer because you're getting more complexity from each, uh, each malt that you add because of its freshness. So I think the science absolutely backs Chris up when it comes to um, freshness of malt. Think about what smells and aromas are. You don't have to take something and put it in your nose to smell it, right? Aroma is by definition a volatile compound. It exists above it, it what we call the headspace in the gap between the substance and your nose so we know that matter compounds are leaving the substance right they're leaving the malt the moment they come out of the kiln so it only makes sense that over time eventually you're going to have fewer and fewer volatiles remaining because they've left to, to echo chris's 
sentiments that this is a you know untouched topic within the malt world uh, I, I absolutely agree and i believe the reason for it is mainly because there are camps i mean this goes as far down into the depths of um you know believing things for no other reason than experience or um you know having a hill that you want to die on you know grilling <laughs> corn grilling corn with the husk on or the husk off for removing the membrane behind ribs uh, before you rub them. I mean, these are things that are probably, um, it doesn't matter how much science you throw at people, um, they, they believe uh, what they want to believe. And I, and I think what's missed in this, in this freshness conversation is the fact that, um, you know, I believe at least that freshness is, um, it's subjective. I mean, I, I think people have their own definition of freshness. Um, what I would say for uh, small scale monsters like myself and others that, you know, it's just, it comes down to an economy of scale thing. I mean, my roaster is 400 pounds. Um, you know, many roasters are four tons in, in the, in the larger malt houses. So, um, you, you know, we are inherently moving through uh specialty produced products whether it's our crystals or our our dry roasts um just much faster i mean we're um we we try to make as much as we can so that we're not constantly chasing our tail and we can fulfill orders in a timely fashion but at the same time yeah it does come down to the fact that you might order some roasted barley and i gotta tell you that uh, um, i'll get it to you and two days because i gotta roast it real quick um not that it's a quick <laughs> process but, but in the end i think um freshness has nothing but um a positive impact on the brewing world uh that said i do think uh, and it, you know we're trying to work a little bit in house and trying to kind of quantify what impacts that can be i mean there is uh, potential that I'm actively trying to prove that could say that because of the presence of these volatile compounds that Aaron mentioned, um, and perhaps what technology a maltster is using to produce those roasted malts, whether they have, um, you know, sp- spray nozzles in their roaster or if they have um you know fan assisted cooling trays things like that um you may in fact have to adjust your recipe for freshness which um you know i consider to be a good thing that being said there are there are impacts that need to be considered um and i would love to be able to say one day that um you use fresher stuff. You just don't have to use as much. And I think any brewer with a um, an accounts payable <laughs> um, column in his budget sheet would appreciate the fact that they don't have to use as much. What can you tell us about the difference in chemical compounds found in, say, roasted barley versus black malt versus chocolate malt? I'm sure there's a lot of complexity here, but are there some important differentiating flavor compounds or ratios of flavor compounds that correlate to sensory? Well, there's over, there's thousands of known flavor active chemicals. You know, maybe we have words to describe a a few hundred of them. Um, Surprisingly, there's little, very little information on the specific chemical compound names. Um, And, and, funny thing about you know flavor and aroma in in the human vocabulary is that we don't even really have an extensive lexicon of terms that we use um so generally you know, we might say that smells like buttered popcorn um and some brewers know that that is diacetyl but diacetyl is really the name of the chemical not the uh, aroma um and we don't do this for any other type of sensory input, if you think about it, we don't say that shirt you're wearing, John, looks like a banana, right? We just say it's yellow. So I think a better way to talk about it, in, rather than me say, well, of course, you have the pyrazines and the pyridines, is to really talk about the flavor descriptors in terms of how we appreciate them. 
I really love that uh, analogy about the, the the color of and what you see and in fashion and whatnot. And I think that um, there's something really just clean and beautiful about that in terms of you know why flavor in general um, can capture our imagination so much fla- flavor and aroma you know because again it's not just a yellow that we see or it's not just soft or spiky that we touch um, it's it's so much more attached to our sense memories um, you know like if you want to take somebody to a specific time and place um, you know you don't prick the end of their finger or you don't put a blue flashcard in front of your face in their face you talk about the way that campfire smelled or you can't talk about the way that you know this meal tasted or you talk about the way that um you know these these things that you enjoyed and you have this much more kind of emotional attachment um with the with the descriptor and with with that sense memory um i mean as far as as far as like look, bringing that to roasted malts, um, I think there's something to be said about you know what you're using them for um, and what the what the end result you're looking for is. Um, and generally, there is you know part of that really is color um, and the appearance of the beer, um, but there's also just the 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 feeling and the sensation of drinking a darker beer and what that means and and what kind of ways we'll use to describe that will kind of attach themselves to that experience. Um, these sweeter, darker flavors such as chocolate or coffee or whatnot. Um, and yeah, like, you know, speaking to the science of it, um, it's the further degradation of these sugars through the caramelization um, process. And so it's, it's deeper and deeper bittering um, to a point where, uh, you know, at, at a certain point, it just becomes carbon <laughs> that that we're tasting, um, and and not really, you know, a lot of the nuances. And so, you know, the the fact of the matter is, is that you, you know, there there might not be a need necessarily for the super darkest black patent um, malt if you can still achieve the, the desired color with something that also has a little bit more nuance of flavors layered into it. Um, I, I think that's that, you know, that kind of speaks to the idea of using, you know, fresher malts, fresh, fresh roasted malts with more complexity versus using something just to fix the color. Um, but I do think that there's, you know, that that descriptive part of the whole thing and the fact that it's left much more to um, the imagination and or an emotional attachment uh, should really be a win for, for maltsters, craft and otherwise, um, in terms of how they're approaching uh, those specific products and, and, and uh, coaching on their use and, and where you use it. If we want to really describe darker roasted malts, um, we need to, it's its part of that whole sense memory thing or building your vocabulary kind of thing, um, which is going out and, and tasting more darker things and, and, and um, registering those things, you know, like smoked uh smoked meats even or different levels of chocolate from different parts of the world using different quantities uh, or percentages um or even taking a piece of bread and toasting it to different levels and really thinking of what's happening the darker you take this we have a base product that we started with and as we, we can really taste the progression of that now we start to tie those flavors back to where they fell within the prog- progression of the development. And if we can develop um, this descriptive language that's both emotionally evocative, but speaks to the actual process and where, where through that process that was introduced, I think you know, we're having a, a better, deeper conversation about these specialty malts. I think we can build sort of a chemical ladder to speak, that the roasters have to climb through the application of heat. Um, remember that the the starting substrate, the barley itself, these are very large molecules, starches, proteins for the most part, um, cellulose. And so um, these are inert. 
these are inert materials. For something to be aroma active, it has to be small. And so through the application of heat, we're really breaking things down. Um, the, the, the chemical term is pyrolysis. It comes from the pyro, right, the fire, and the lysis, meaning to split, to break down. Um, you know, in the previous episodes, you've talked a lot about the Maillard reaction, which in base malt drives most of the chemistry, right? That creates compounds called melanoidins, which give us that um, bready and biscuity flavors. But as further heat is applied, um, we're not just um, putting together sugars and amino acids in new and complex ways. We start to actually oxidize and change the sugars themselves. That is essentially the caramelization reaction. Um, that creates these compounds that have a, you know, the sweeter characters when only sugar is involved. To take it all the way, when you want to make the chocolate and black products, you have to continue um, to form smaller and smaller compounds. These, that gives you the burnt compounds. And at some point, you're only just seconds away from atomizing into carbon, right? essentially charcoal. And at that point, all flavor and color disappears. So I think the talent of the roaster is really knowing at which point to stop. Chris, rumor has it you were uh, roasting coffee before you became a maltster. How does that background influence your approach to specialty malt? Yeah, well, I roasted coffee. I was in the coffee industry for about 20 years before getting into this. Um, And it was really um, a lot of my work within coffee that, that led me down this path. Just like specialty malts now, specialty coffee um, 30 years ago, you know, was pretty generic and it was small holder producers grew a product um, and sold it to a a mill, a processing mill where it was graded and then just folded in with, you know, a, a large collection from other small holder farms and the end result that then moved to, um, the roasters was, you know, your strictly high-grown Guatemala or your um, Ethiopia grade three or something like that. And nothing was tied back to the farm um, or the producers or even the region for that matter. And in understanding, you know, roasting, malting, you know, coffee, beer, um, these are agricultural endeavors. You know, these are agricultural enterprises. And, no matter what, better understanding your supply chain is going to um, is going to open up what your possibilities to do with that raw material are. You know, not just knowing that it comes from this place, but knowing what happens at that place um, process-wise. But also, why does you know this product produced at this place end up tasting different than a, a similar variety? You know, from a different place, why does the end result come out so different? there's all these impacts that lead to um, something different that lead to that specialization that lead to variety within coffee. We were really good, just like most, you know, niches are at, you know, circling up and and telling each other what a great job we were doing and how smart we were and, you know, how different and brilliant and whatnot we were doing. But it was all within the same circle, you know, it was an echo chamber. We're all doing the same thing and using the same inputs and the same um, kind of starting point and reference points. And it just became more and more evident um, as we went on um, that to better understand roasting, like we understood where the raw material came from and we started to understand those impacts on quality and impacts on differentiation. Um, But what wasn't being done was you know, really understanding roasting and pushing pushing the under, the ideas of roasting even further um, beyond just the technology of it, but what's going on in the process itself. And and it became really evident that if we wanted to kind of take a next step with um, understanding coffee roasting, then we needed to really look more closely at the roasting of other products and how did you use, how do you use similar technology um, to get a similar and or different result um, from a different product you know like in nuts and spices and co- cacao the roasting uh, process is much more driven by 
uh, just a drying process. So it's much more fluid bed driven, uh, much more pure convective roasting styles because you're just trying to strip moisture out of the product um, to reduce uh, bitterness or off flavors. And what really intrigued me about um, malts was that it was much more closely related to coffee, the roasting process was, because you were engaging in these mired and caramelization reactions to develop both flavor and color um, as an end result. So there was there was a, a huge attraction to me in terms of, oh, these things are really, really similar, but if you look at it um, the way that they're used and the end results can be so different. So, um, you know, that really just inspired me to start, start digging into, you know, what, what is malt roasting and how does that differ from, uh, from the coffee roasting in that experience? And it's, it's been really eye-opening. Um, you know, the coffee roast really is coffee in and of itself is such a com- complex seed. Um, but it's such a fast roast that you're using to, you know, harness this energy and make these changes um, within this super complex seed versus cereals, you know, much more simpler, much more delicate. But because of that, rather than it being a faster process, it's a much slower process to develop um to develop flavors and colors appropriately without creating harsh, harsh flavors. Whereas with the coffee, if you drew out a roast too long, you would really push all of those volatiles out of the product to the point where now it doesn't have an aroma or strong flavors. Um, and you're just tasting the roasted cellulose. Um, whereas with uh, the cereals, the, the slower you take it, um, the less that you're creating these charring reactions on husks or, or exterior materials. So you're able to really kind of develop um, flavor through those those sugar chains, breaking down those sugar chains over a long period of time um, versus the shorter, more immediate kind of 15, um, 12 to maybe 18 minute coffee roast. Now you're looking at, you know, 45 minutes to multiple hours um, with grain. Coming up, I really approach flavor development in the malt house the same as I would approach flavor development in the kitchen. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. Support for this podcast is brought to you by ABS Commercial is a full-service brewery and parts outfitter. From our Raleigh headquarters to our Denver office, we proudly offer brew houses and fermenters from three barrels and up, yeast brinks, boilers, kegs, chillers, triclamp, and other stainless parts, all with the quickest delivery and lead times in the industry. Learn more at abs-commercial.com or call 877-BREW-ABS. ABS Commercial. We are brewers. Additional support provided by Brewer Supply Group is now the proud exclusive distributor of Dingaman's Malt. BSG is thrilled to partner with the Dingaman's family and to distribute their superior quality malts to brewers, distillers, and homebrewers in the U.S. and Canada. Dingaman's Malt combines modern techniques with their long-standing focus on quality and service to their customers and remains 100% independent and family-owned. Go to bsgcraftbrewing.com to learn more. And thank you also to Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation live streams data from your active fermentations, allowing you to remotely track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Try it free for 30 days. Visit precisionfermentation.com MBAA. As you might imagine, there still aren't any opportunities to gather in person for district meetings, but that doesn't slow us down. After all, Master Brewers, which was formed in 1887, has survived more than one pandemic. Spring and summer have brought us numerous webinars and virtual district meetings, many of which can be replayed on demand. The District Texas Annual Summer Meeting in Kerrville is August 7th through the 9th. The Master Brewers Brewery Systems Technology and Maintenance course begins September 13th in Madison. You've heard me talking about the 2020 World Brewing Congress for several months now. As I've mentioned, it's my favorite industry conference. I've been looking forward to it since the 2016 WBC ended. 
Unfortunately, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we won't be able to gather in Minneapolis as planned. As much as that stinks, there is a pretty serious silver lining. WBC 2020 is going fully virtual, which means you can access the world's most cutting-edge research in brewing science and technology easily and affordably from the comfort of your own home. Registration for WBC Connect is now open, with information on both free and paid programming options. Visit worldbrewingcongress.org for details, or check the direct link in the show notes. The District Northwest Fall Meeting is scheduled for October 9th and 10th. The Master Brewers Brewing and Malting Science course is October 25th through November 6th in Madison. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Did you know we have a team of Master Brewers members like Bryn Keenan and Dominic Charbonneau who rate district presentations and recommend guests for this show? Do you want to be part of that team? It's an important job and it only takes about two hours per year. Learn more at masterbrewerspodcast.com slash working group or look for more details in the Master Brewers Communicator. Now back to the show. You mentioned a, a new roaster earlier. Based on what I saw on your website, it appears you don't have a roaster at Troubadour, but you've been utilizing a, a coffee roaster in Boulder. Uh, talk about that uh, the decision on that approach. Yeah, so um, we actually do have a roaster in-house now. We just installed in January. Um, we've just been in a, in a very active expansion mode um, for the last six months. So part of that expansion mode has not been updating our website <laughs> as of yet. Uh, but we did purchase a Bueller um, Zonda roaster, which is it's the first one in North America. Um, and I can talk a little bit about that technology in, in a minute. But that roaster that I was using in Boulder, um, I used for a very specific reason. So <clears throat> one of the earliest things I discovered about um, the differences in coffee and uh, malt roasting was the um, importance of the equipment that you were using. Whereas a drum roaster, I think, is still a superior roaster to any pure fluid bed roaster. Um, a drum roaster uses, in concert, a radiant, um, conductive, and convective heat transfer all together. So you're, you're developing you're engaging with the product in these three different kind of stages. Um, so you, that you're developing internally within the product at the same time as externally. And you can really find that balance with a, with a drum roaster in a way that's really difficult to do with a pure fluid bed convective roaster. Um, that being said, because coffee is so dense and such a heavy, uh, product, um, and it doesn't absorb as much, most, commercial coffee roasters even small scale specialty um coffee roasters uh their drum style roasters usually have a burner assembly your combustion directly under the roasting chamber and then the way that the airflow interacts with that roasting chamber is it pulls that heat energy um through the combustion and then through the drum and that's where the convective transfer uh happens in a lot of the drum classic drum roasters um but that being said is that kind of setup with coffee um it's a shorter roast like i was saying maybe 12 to 18 20 minute long roast it's a very dense product and there's a very active movement of air throughout the entirety of the roast process you know minus some minor adjustments you might make at different times as the density of the product changes but that being said that air that's moving through the combustion um, is not introducing effluent from that combustion into the product because the coffee is so dense and the exposure time is also so limited. And then also the brewing time for the coffee might only be, you know, two to five minutes or, you know, 30 seconds in the case of espresso. So you're not going to extract every single thing out of that product. Now with malts being a much more delicate raw material um, and being a much longer, you know, in terms of hours roast process, um, if your airflow is moving through your combustion at all, gathering that, um, 
that effluent from the combustion, that effluent will be introduced into the product. Um, and then also subsequently, when you brew with that raw material, with the malts, um, that will be leached out into your, that effluent from the combustion will show up in your brew, um, creating off flavors and whatnot. So the, the, the technology is really important to pay attention to. You can't just put um, malts in any commercial coffee roaster. Um, you really need to have offset um, combustion if you're going to use um, that style of drum roaster on your malts. And so that Gotthot roaster, Gotthot was a manufacturer from Germany um, that was purchased by the Probot company um, in the 80s. Um, the Gotthot was unique in its design that it had offset side-mounted combustion in the way that the drum kind of rolled away from the combustion that was mounted high on the side and the airflow didn't pull through the combustion. The Bueller roaster um, that we just purchased and installed is really unique to any other roaster I've used. I've roasted on over 30 different models of, of roasters. Um, over my career and the Bueller is really unique in that it's forced hot air to heat the drum but it's all conductive and radiant heat transfer the airflow does not move through the product in the drum at all it's all just heated air on the outside of the drum um, and the drum is almost a vacuum so it's all conductive and radiant transfer that was a great segue because I was essentially going to ask you both to, to talk about how roaster technology affects malt. So, Jeff, let's hear about your roaster. How does it work and what does that mean for your malt? We decided to purchase uh, the first of the second generation drum roaster from the gentleman over at uh, Colorado Malting in Alamosa. It is inherently unique in that it you know, is built by maltsters for roasting malt uh it was not conceptualized for any other use and so we we do have some differences in technology from both a coffee roaster and then also the larger malt manufacturer roasters in that we you know it's a sealed drum it's offset jet burners that produce that combustion heat on the side of the on the side of the drum however we don't have things like open and closable vents uh, that many um, larger maltsters use in production of things like uh, like crystal malts and we also don't have uh, sprayers inside of our inside of our roaster which i believe chris correct me if i'm wrong i, I believe the bueller does going back to kind of the uh, the convection method employed by coffee roasters with this sealed drum we also don't have that hot moving air going through the drum which you know we essentially to use chris's term we we create a a vacuum within our um within our 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 drum which i believe and just from experiencing and tasting other malts and then um you know sensory on ours and and also just visually looking at it we're able to i think by essentially combusting away the uh the oxygen within that drum roaster we're able to get very deep uh uniform color within our malt so we don't you know we're not roasting for the pure purpose of hitting a color spec and as soon as we get there we're done um you know many times that can just be charred components of the outer husk that are producing color that is not really um translating into the the target flavor and so we are one of those operations that you know our our schedules take hours i mean our um you know our crystal malts are a little a little faster um but you know our dark um our pale chocolate our dark chocolate we have a sumerian line which is essentially the um you know the the quote-unquote carafa style malts um environment fame uh you know those are upwards of of all day i mean between getting the roaster going and then having it run its schedule and then unload and cooling um you know you're talking anywhere from five to six hours um and so while it's 
immensely inconvenient. I mean, I'm not going to lie. Like if, <laughs> if it rains in the morning um, and I need to produce some, some dark chocolate malt, um, I'm pushing that to the next day. Um, but what I, what I do believe it does is um, it forces patience within our roasting protocols that I believe is what sets a lot of our specialty malts apart and allows the freshness that we've talked about in this episode um, to really shine through because we have, we've spent so much time on these malts. We have so patiently um, roasted them. Uh, You know, we employ a lot of ramp times and ramp rates. We also do a lot of target temperature achievement, but then we, uh, what the, what the guys at Colorado Malting would call old road, uh, old world roasting techniques, where you essentially reach that that target temperature and then you let it slow roll, cool its way down to a more um, to a milder temperature, and then you bring it back up to that heat. And so when I, you know, when I really sp- speak of of flavor development in malt, whether it's our bases or our higher kilned Viennas and Munichs, or or in our our roasted malts, I really approach flavor development in the malt house the same as i would approach flavor development in the kitchen layering of flavors to me is the most important concept in uh, a dynamic flavor creation we believe we're really adding multiple layers of flavor and color development that allow us to achieve phenomenal flavor but without burning it in an attempt to get it to, you know, 450 lova bond. And so, you know, we also don't have sprays, so we're not able to quench uh, at these very high temperatures. So I do, I very much um, have to build our, our roasting schedules to allow for, for heat to creep up. And then also knowing that it's going to take a little bit longer for it to cool down. And so we do have to mind, uh, you know, the pyrazine creation, which is where you get a lot of that bitterness and char, um, and avoid, I mean, I've carbonized plenty of malt. Um, there's nothing quite like, you know, shooting for 400, getting 350, trying to roast it a little bit more. And then all of a sudden your malt is like 60 lova bond. And it's because you have essentially produced a lump charcoal in your roaster and it's time to start over. And so um, it has been, it's, you know, very much lengthened the learning curve. Um, but I think it has, it has trained me to think about roasting in a different, uh, in a different, more thoughtful way. When we look at chocolate malt, Chris, you've got a roughly 325 Love Bond product called Moonlight Serenade. And once again, Jeff is sort of bookending that with a pale milk chocolate, and then there's a, a darker baker's cocoa. Let's hear how you guys approach those different products as well as what makes them unique. That was a product, the Moonlight Serenade was a product I developed in that in that Godhot roaster. Um, and the Godhot was is beautiful you know it's not the most um energy efficient uh roaster because of that side mounted combustion and the way that it doesn't necessarily um reuse as much of that energy as possible um so it's allowed to i can get up to those temperatures those uh color development temperatures and then hold it and plateau it um kind of creating those layers uh I can get up there in about, you know, uh, 30 to 45 minutes without creating any charring because of the really um, soft transfer, no direct hot energy transfer um, from the burner directly to the product. Um, and it really helped kind of capture uh, a lot of that chocolate and coffee profile in that malt, um, developing that. In the Bueller now, it's the roast takes about twice as long because, again, we don't have the convective energy that's transferring through um, because it's a vacuum drum rather or closed-off drum rather than airflow moving through the drum in that roasting process. Um so that does elongate the roasting process for that same product, but we can also, because we do have full quenching capabilities in this in this roaster, we can introduce a little bit of uh, water right at the very beginning um, of the roast 
that we can um, use to, to, to play around with a little bit of converting those sugars, developing that sweetness um, so that the final product has this underlying sweetness um, that's partnering with the, the caramelized chocolate and, and coffee flavors as well. Um, the, the quenching has been really helpful in terms of not just um, safety, which is huge, um, but also in terms of just adding another element um, in our in you know in our repertoire to use in the way that we approach some of these malts and approach developing flavor in some of these malts. The Moonlight Serenade, we use our Serenade malt, which is a base. It's a, a base malt based off of you know a Golden Promise kind of model, a slightly higher kilned um, base malt. Um, so we use that as the basis for the Moonlight Serenade because there's already some really nice um, uh, honey, uh, floral honey kind of flavors that, you know, in the roaster just develop into these these uh, more caramelized um, kind of coffee, sweetened coffee kind of uh, flavors um, through the roaster. And so, um, and the other side of the quenching coin is that, I think it's, you know, Jeff really hit this on the head, which is cooling um, is one of the most important elements of roasting uh, because it's not the active, you know, introduction of energy. Um, I think it's something that gets overlooked in just about any product that you roast, but it has such a huge impact on the final product in terms of the way that bitterness is perceived um, or sweetness is perceived um, conversely uh, that being able to, to, to cool in a more controlled way um, is going to really help to sculpt those flavors and the quenching adds another element in that and being able to cool a product almost instantly um, halting that further um, caramelization development. And so we can really take it up to that point um, where that roaster can make the decision on this is the flavor that we're, that we're trying to capture now and have, you know, a lot of confidence. And that's, what's going to be translated knowing that it's still developing, even with quenching, it's still developing in the cooling tray as well. A lot of that flavor is still developing um, because you still have energy and, and, and interactions. Um, but it's been really interesting to wrap my head around what the capabilities are with that quenching, especially in the development of of what we're what we're doing over there in that roaster with uh, crystal malts or um, like carapil style uh, low color dextrin malts. I mean that's I mean really, um, and Jeff might be able to speak to this as well, but. Um, you know, we definitely have a lot of interest in our darker color malts like Moonlight Serenade or our um, roasted wheat, our Midnight Antero. Um, but um, really, we're getting the most interest in in dextrin style malts, and that's an area where okay, now we're utilizing a roaster to create this uh, um, reaction, but we have to utilize it in such a way that we're not putting in color or we're really controlling slow um, minimal color development um, with some of these products which is an entirely different ball of wax our two base chocolate malts are our milk chocolate which is our pale it's about um about generally about two 240 to two 280 um, and then our our baker's cocoa which is our dark chocolate um that hits the higher threes um into four the process for roasting these are are more or less the same, other than time and and some some temperature adjustments. But uh, generally speaking, you know, we start in the drum by doing something as simple as just warming up the batch. Uniformity to me, particularly in our roaster, is is very important. We first start with um, just a very slow ramp rate up to generally about 170 just to get everybody um you know on the on the same starting block and then uh we start initiating what i was referenced before around these you know target temperature endpoints and then we allow it to slow roll down so we'll go from about 170 to about 325 we'll uh we'll bring it up to that we'll let that um 
slow roll down and then we'll bring it up to 375 let it slow roll down bring it to 375 again let it slow roll down and then get a final kind of color tie off uh at 375 for our pale chocolate, we get up to about 395 with our with our baker's cocoa. Um, you know, get into the fickleness of dry roasting. I mean, we go to if we go to 400 on our baker's cocoa, we change the malt. Um, it is not what it was supposed to be, and so um, even those five degrees, based on uh, temperature rise before and after, um, you can overshoot you know, just something as simple as your color spec, um, by up at that range, you're into like the, you know, multiples of 10 Lova bond, um, that something like a small move like that would do. So, um, you know, those are very much layered on high heat applications, but we never, we, we tend not to really hold our, our roasts at these high temperatures. You know, I don't get up to 395 and then like soak it for a half hour at 395 and just let it, torch the drum um for a half hour we don't really mess with that kind of approach uh approach here it's just too it's too hard on it uh it, you get a lot more inconsistency you get a lot more um you know burnt dust that you know you're essentially just removing burned husk material and it it starts to really change the the end game and so um that's where we prioritize even in in darker malts like that this this concept of um high heat and then letting it roll down at high heat again how hard is it to make the same specialty malt from a different barley variety um so I, i actually find it more difficult to um to build consistency not necessarily around variety but um the starting base malt well actually not even the base malt the the quality of the grain uh to be to be honest with you so um you know i think it's this long-held myth that well if things don't work out in the malt house just roast it um and while that could perhaps um be true with a let's say you have a a pills or a pale malt that is um less than uh ideal in terms of an enzyme package and it doesn't carry enough uh enzymatic potential as a base malt and so now you're sitting here with um however many tons your system does of, of pills malt um that is uh to me uh a an appropriate use uh of that grain for roasting now if you were to then also then say wow look my farmer's got this um scala barley that is completely and totally decimated by pre-harvest sprout damage and it has an rva score of like 20 um but he's selling it at like six bucks a bushel um why don't i just bring that in and, and malt it uh so i can say i malted it and then just roast it um that doesn't work uh that you know you end up with um and <laughs> not to suggest that this is something <laughs> something that pretty we, specific <laughs> there we, jeff we, we did, <laughs> but we did no we did make a in our early days we made a mistake of um of thinking with pre-harvest sprout damage, sometimes you can get away with malting it um, if you malt it quickly. It won't store very well, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it won't malt at all. And there are, you know, there are, you know, there's a damage, you know, scale there between stuff that just don't even bother and then stuff that you can get away with for the purposes of not rejecting and you know 20 acres of grain from your farmer um so if you can you know certainly if we can work with it we do but um you know we had uh we thought we would be able to you know we were ready to malt it immediately and we did and the uh finished malt was completely you know unacceptable um and so while we were waiting for it to be taken away um we roasted some of it um i mean at least i can now say that for a fact it doesn't work and it was purely done for the the purposes of saying of myth busting this concept of if you have a problem in the mall house can you roast it away um and it no you can i mean it ends up being um 
completely uh, from a texture perspective, um, completely unwieldy. You, you know, you get different color penetration through um, sound and unsound kernels. Um, and you just, you have to start with quality raw grain that then makes quality malt that you have um, ideally uh, earmarked for the purposes of roasting. That was Aaron McLeod, Chris Schooley, and my local maltster Jeff Bloom here on the Master Brewers podcast. I hope this series of three episodes about barley, malting, and roasting inspires you to become an advocate for barley, to pay more attention to specialty malt freshness, and leverage the ever-expanding possibilities of specialty malt in your brew house to elevate beer. You've heard me talking about the 2020 World Brewing Congress for several months now. As I've mentioned, it's my favorite industry conference. I've been looking forward to it since the 2016 WBC ended. Unfortunately, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we won't be able to gather in Minneapolis as planned. As much as that stinks, there is a pretty serious silver lining. WBC 2020 is going fully virtual, which means you can access the world's most cutting-edge research in brewing science and technology easily and affordably from the comfort of your own home. Registration for WBC Connect is now open, with information on both free and paid programming options. Visit worldbrewingcongress.org for details, or check the direct link in the show notes. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, ABS, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Stop.